If you have your Bible, um, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew chapter number 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 36. The scripture says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to the disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners." Today marks the beginning of the week that changed the world. Not seven days, but eight days. Began on what we call Palm Sunday, on what Jewish people refer to as Lamb Selection Day, and ended on what we call Easter, but what heaven calls Resurrection Day. Today I want to talk to you about the beginning of that great week, the beginning of the week that changed the history of the world. I don't want to talk to you about the end of that week, I want to talk to you about an event that took place in the middle of that week. I want to talk to you about Jesus' Gethsemane experience. Gethsemane, by the way, means pressing. It's an, it was an olive garden, an olive grove. And um, they would take the olives from that grove and obviously put them in an olive press and extract olive oil. And it was the perfect place for Jesus to go and work out the painful process of what he would have to endure in order to experience the promise, the agony before the ecstasy, if you will. And there's always agony in the middle. There's always agony between uh, decision and destiny. There's always agony between promise and the fulfillment of promise. There's, there's always agony between where you are now and where you want to go in life or where God wants you to go. And it is the middle, not the beginning and not the end, where life is decided and destiny is forged. And so today I want to talk to you about a simple subject that I believe will resonate with many of you. And my title is simply this, you're going to make it through your middle. You're going to make it through your middle. I believe that there are a lot of people who are here at our campuses on television who are stuck in the middle of something. But I believe you're going to make it through your your middle season, and that's what today's word is all about. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to every heart here at our campuses in New York and Waterbury and Atlanta, anybody watching online or by television, would you speak to our hearts individually and uniquely so that we can be transformed into the very image of Christ? We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said, as you're being seated, encourage somebody, say you're going to make it through your middle. That wasn't very good, by the way. I didn't feel encouraged by that. You may, you may be seated. You may be seated. The middle is where the struggle is, isn't it? It's not the wedding day. 
It's not the 50th anniversary celebration. It's the middle between the wedding day and the 50th celebration that makes marriage hard. It's not the first day of work or receiving the gold watch after being there for 25 years that makes work difficult. It's climbing the corporate ladder in the middle that is difficult. It's not the initial ability to dream um, that is difficult. It's not experiencing the dream come to pass. It's the middle between when you got the dream and when you see the dream that is difficult. The middle, not the beginning, not the end, is where the miracle takes place. And we know this. Nobody likes the middle. The middle is a challenge. Everybody avoids the middle or tries to shorten the middle. I mean, nobody says, uh, get me the middle seat on the plane. Nobody wants the middle seat on the plane, right? You want the window, you want the aisle. Because if you're in the middle seat, right, you got to fight for an armrest, right? You got to just make make sure you claim your space first, right? You got to put on your noise-canceling headphones quick because you're subject to having your ear talked off from both sides, right? You got to go to the bathroom before you sit down because when you get up, you disturb two people if you're in the middle. Nobody likes the middle. The middle is always a challenge for us. One of the biggest challenges in life is our midsection, isn't it? I mean, who likes that midsection? The middle is a problem. Men and women go crazy during middle life crises, right? Um, who likes to be in the middle of a crowd? Nobody likes that. I feel bad for those people in Times Square that are stuck in the middle of that crowd. Can't get out. Can't go anyway. Got to wait for the people on the end to leave, the people on the, at the front of the, at the beginning of the crowd to leave. You're stuck in the middle. The middle is never a joyous experience. Old school has charm, right? Everybody says, let's do it old school. And new school is in vogue, but nobody says, how about we try middle school on that, right? There's no such thing. And middle school, if there is a such thing, is the awkward phase for kids, right? It's when, it's when they get pimples and, and when they, you know, have to grow into their big feet and their, their body begins to change and they, they go through all those, all those things. Mid, middle school is, is not something that anybody ever reminisces fondly about. Nobody ever says, I want to retu- return to my middle school days. It's always high school or college or elementary middle school is just, it's marginalized, it's stereotyped. We talk about the middle child, right? That's the stigmatism of the middle child. And even God doesn't speak fondly of being in the middle. He says, I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm. What is lukewarm? It's, it's in the middle. He says, I, I got to spew you out of my mouth. And we, we all hate the middle. Nobody likes the middle. But, but the message that God has for us today is that whether you like the middle or don't like the middle... You're going to make it through your your middle season. A lot of people are stuck right now, maybe here, maybe watching at one of our campuses in the middle of something, the middle of a divorce, the middle of a challenging decision, the middle of a health fight, the middle of an addiction, the middle of a marriage that isn't going the way that you want it to go, the middle of a spiritually defining moment, the middle of a career crisis, the middle of a relationship decision or a lingering hurt, the middle of a mess with your kids, the middle of a pain that won't exit your life. Nobody likes the middle. Here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you that it's just the middle. It's not the end. See, don't don't confuse the middle with the end. Sometimes we think the middle is the end. Sometimes we think the middle is is, is, as far as we can go in life. But but God wants us to know that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's He's the writer of our stories. And God doesn't want us to stop in the middle before we get to experience the amazing ending that God has for us. And so before we go any further, I just want to stop and encourage you and let you know you're going to make it through your middle. It's just the middle. Pastor, how do I make it through my middle season? The answer to that question 
is one of the reasons why I love Jesus so much. Jesus is, is somebody who knows what it's like to process through the agony of the middle. His Garden of Gethsemane was the middle of that week that changed the world. It was the, the difficult portion. It was the, the hard portion of his time. And what I love about Jesus is he didn't lead a charmed life. He wasn't exempt from pain. He knows what it's like to identify with our middle seasons of life. And, and so when we come to our text, we find Jesus in a strange way. When I think of Jesus, I think of Jesus with a smile on his face. I know a lot of people don't think of God like that. They think of God as a crotchety old man, you know, with a, with a, with a grimace on his face. But I think of Jesus with a smile on his face. I, I think Jesus enjoyed life. I think he had fun. I think, I think the joy of the Lord is what carried Jesus. But when we come to the garden, we don't find Jesus like we're used to seeing him. We, we find Jesus heavy. We find him sorrowful. We find him overwhelmed. We find him burdened with the task that is before him. He's praying and he's asking God, is there any other way? And what I, what I think is interesting is he prays the same prayer over and over and over and over and over again, the same thing. And if you've ever been in a middle season, you know what's that, what that's like. You know what it's like to, to get stuck and you feel like your life is on repeat. You know, you, you feel like that, that record that just keeps playing over and over and over and over and over again. You just, you just keep praying the same thing. It's not that you don't want to move on, but you seem stuck there and you, you don't know how to move past that particular thing. And you keep asking God for the same thing over and over and over again. If it's possible, Lord, can this cup pass from me? Is there another way for me to go from here to there? And, and Jesus... What's interesting about Jesus is Jesus didn't go into the garden to find out how the story is going to end. He already knew how the story was going to end. If you read through the scriptures, he says things like, as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. He knew how the story was going to end. He, he says in another place, he says, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Speaking of himself, he knew how the story was going to end. He says in another place to Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He knew how the story was going to end. He doesn't go into the garden to find out how the story was going to end. He goes into the garden to process the pain of the middle. The middle is, is, is painful. It's, it's trying. It's the hardest part of the middle is, is waiting. Some of you, you have confidence in God, in his promise. You know God is ultimately going to come through. You, you, you know that. You have no doubt in your, your mind. You, you love the Lord. But, but you want to know, is, is there a quicker way to get there? Can we, do we have to go through it this way? Do we have to walk through this valley of this shadow of death in order to, in order to get to the table of your presence, Lord? Is there, is there any other way? Can, can we go with another cup? And the hardest thing about the middle is the waiting seasons of life. And I've often asked the Lord about that scripture, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. And I, I've often asked the Lord about that, and I said, Lord, it doesn't feel like that while I'm waiting. God, it, it, when I'm waiting, I, I tend to worry. Anybody worry while they're waiting? Is it just me? Uh, maybe I'm only the human person, the only human person. I, I worry a lot while I'm waiting. I, I try to figure stuff out while I'm waiting. And, and sometimes I get, you know, I get, I get anxious when I'm waiting. And in the process of waiting, I, I don't want to wait anymore on God's way. I, I want a different cup. And so oftentimes what I do, I don't know about you. <clears throat> But what I do is I reach for a different cup. I make a different cup myself, and, and I want to mess in the situation up, and I, and I shouldn't because waiting is difficult. The middle seasons are never easy. They're, they're hard to process. And so the question that I think God wants us to answer today, especially for those of you that are stuck in the middle, 
of something right now. How do you make it through your middle? And I want to give you a couple of keys from our, from our text, from our story. And the first one may sound like a religious cliche, but trust me, it is the only way. And that is if you're going to make it through your middle, number one, you need to learn to lean on God. To lean on God. I want you to notice how Jesus processes through this middle. I think it's astounding. Notice that um, he goes to Gethsemane, his place of prayer, and he takes 12 of his friends with him, 12 friends. And then to, to three of the 12, he takes a little further. And then to those three, he says, stay here while I go a little further and I pray, just me and God. And so the way we process middle seasons is we start off by trying to lean on people. Have you ever, have you ever recognized that, right? And the first kind of people that we try to lean on is what I call distant people. These are people, these are the 12. These are people that will just give us smiles and kind words and words of encouragement. And, and, and we'll, we'll tell them a little bit more than we probably should tell them because they're distant people. In our effort to want somebody to, to relate to what we're going through, we'll, we'll kind of spill our beans to just anybody who will listen. And, and you'll get kind people who will encourage you, and especially in the church, they'll say things like this to you. They'll say, well, I'll pray for you. And then as they're walking away from you, they'll say something like, bless them, Lord, so they don't forget to pray for you. And because distant people, really, they don't carry your burdens like that, right? But, but thank God for distant people. Thank God for the smiles, and thank God for the kind words. And we all need encouragement. We all need a friendly face. That's like when we come to church, by the way, and I know that we, we sometimes do this um, to the chagrin of what's actually going on in our lives, and, but we need to put on a smiley face when we're in church, especially if you're serving in church, if you're a greeter, if you're an usher, if, if you're somebody that's dealing with kids, smile, notify your face that your spirit's been saved, smile a little bit, let other people be greeted warmly, you never know who needs that smile when you first come, when they first come into church, and, and so we start off relying or leaning on distant people, but then there's that second group of people, and we see this in Jesus' progression, I call them designated people, this is Peter, James, and John. These are the people that were invited into Jesus' inner circle. These were the people who didn't just, just wander into his inner circle. Don't ever let anybody wander into your inner circle. You, you need to invite people into your inner circle. And, and the only way you should invite people into your inner circle is after you have examined whether or not they are one of those destiny relationships that God wants you to have. And so when people come into your inner circle, these are people that can handle your humanity without questioning your spirituality. These are people that can see you go through. These are people that can, 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 can be okay with the fact that in your dealing with the middle, processing the pain of the middle, you may not always be spiritually on. You, you may say some things that you, don't, that you regret saying, that, that you shouldn't say. You may react in ways that you shouldn't. But these people's world doesn't get rocked when they see your humanity because they're designated people. And the reason why they're designated is because they can help you process through. They can love you through your mess. They can love you through your sloppiness. They, they can extend the grace that you need. And here's what we see Jesus doing, and you, you notice the, the, the pattern, right? He would go from being by himself and God to then going back to his, his designated people. Going, going back to himself and God and then going to his designated people. And, and the first time he leaves God and he goes to his designated people, right, he, he's just looking for somebody who can, who can fellowship with his sufferings, right? That's, that's the primary role sometimes of designated people. Sometimes people don't need answers. When I was a young pastor, I thought everybody needed an answer, right? So they would come to me with their problems, and I felt obligated to, to give them an answer. And then I learned that not everybody's looking for an answer all the time. I also learned that sometimes there are no answers. 
I wish I had all the answers, but sometimes I, I can't explain stuff. I, I don't know why. But I found out that no matter what situation people are in, that I can always try to at least fellowship with their sufferings. I, I can try to, 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 to weep with them, to mourn with them, to, to show compassion to them. So what Jesus is looking for is not answers because he already knows the answer. He is the answer. He's looking for somebody to groan a little bit with him, somebody to, to, to say, I understand, somebody to shed a few tears with him, right? And he comes back and he doesn't find that. In his designated people. And if you notice what happens to him, he gets upset, right? He's like, you couldn't pray with me for just one hour? And you know why he gets upset? Because even Jesus tried to put something on people that they can't carry. Did you know that people can't feel your pain the same way that you're feeling your pain? It's impossible. And it is unfair to expect people to be in your heart and to be in your mind the same way that you can't be in somebody else's heart and mind. This is why it is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> to say to somebody, well, you should act like this. Or if I were going through that, this is how I would respond. You don't know how you would respond in the same situation. They may be responding well compared to how you would respond in the same situation. That's why answers are not good enough a lot of times. And, and sometimes all people need is fellowship in our suffering. Right? And so Jesus is looking for that. And at first he gets mad and then he goes back to God. And then the second time he goes back, he, he gets mad but he doesn't say anything. And by the third time he comes back, he says, sleep on now. This was the crossover place for Jesus. This is when Jesus realized that you can start with distant people and you can move to designated people, but eventually you have to rely on the divine, your divine relationship with God, that only God can, can feel what you're going through. I realized this when my wife had our children. You know, my, my wife was pregnant, of course, when it was time for her to give, give birth. I took her to the hospital and you know, had mapped out the route beforehand to make sure it was the quickest way to get there and all that kind of stuff and drove it a million times and found out which speed I could go and all that kind of stuff. And, and finally, when we got there um, and the contractions weren't really heavy, we both, you know, got in the room together and we'd watch the machine and the machine tells you when the contraction is coming. And it was kind of cute at first, right? We'd be like, oh, here comes one. <laughs> and, and while the contractions weren't, weren't bad, you know, We'd hold hands, and she'd go through the contraction, and it wasn't that bad for her at the, at the, at the beginning. And, and after it was over, I'd feed her ice chips. That was, it was nice. <laughs> and then the contractions begin to intensify a little bit. And, um, and I'd say, here comes another one. She didn't appreciate that so much. <laughs> and, and as the contractions really got bad, was, I, she was holding my hand, right? And, and she would be going through the contractions. You know how that goes? She'd have to deal with it, and she'd be like... <laughs> Right? But she'd squeeze my hand so hard that when she was going through the contractions, I'd be like, <laughs> right? And suddenly I realized as, as she was experiencing the contractions, and, and I begin to say, Here comes another one. She'd say, Shut up! <laughs> I, I know here comes another one. And I realized that we weren't pregnant. Stupid people saying, we're pregnant, we're pregnant, we're pregnant. You ain't pregnant if you're a man. That's some type of miracle I ain't never seen before. I understand that you're trying to relate to your wife's experience, but can I tell you, you can only relate so 
far. You, you can't relate to why pickles and ice cream go together. You can't relate. You can't relate to what it's like to not be able to get your shoes on because your ankles are so swollen. You don't know what it's like to feel them contractions. And you certainly don't know what it's like to pass something that big through something that small. Unless, unless you passed a kidney stone. That's some serious pain right there, you know. But even so, like a kidney stone is only like about that big. It's just a little bit bigger than where it exits. But a baby is like, I think that's God's punishment to men. Oh, yeah? You want to feel what kidneys are, kidney stones are like? This is what pregnancy is like. And I learned, though, that we can only relate so far. We can, we can only lean on people so far. Don't put that expectation on people. They're not God. People are not meant to carry you through every situation. That's what God, that's God's job. And so notice what Jesus does. He finally gets to the place, and this is why I love Jesus, processing through the middle where he comes out and he says, sleep on. What's he saying? I realized that you guys can only be there for me to a certain extent. And when we go through our middle seasons, we have to realize that it's Jesus and Jesus alone that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. When when we go, Jesus goes, when we feel a pain, when we wince, Jesus winces, he can experience everything that we're experiencing and he knows us inside and out. And so you're going to make it through your middle season, the first thing you need to do is learn to, to lean on God. The second thing as you go through your middle season that you're going to have to do is, is rely on grace. Rely on grace. Notice three times Jesus prayed. Why? Because, again, when you're going through, sometimes you just repeat yourself. And he prays three times, and there's another famous prayer of a famous person that prayed three times, and they're coming out with a movie about him next week, the Apostle Paul. By the way, we're going to do a series after Easter about the Apostle Paul. After Easter, we're going to do a series first. It's going to be called Idols, because American Idol is back in the house. <laughs> and then we're going to go into a series on the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, you might remember, he prayed three times about the same thing. Apostle Paul had a messenger of Satan assigned to him calls it a thorn in his flesh. It wasn't a physical ailment. It was what the Bible says it is, a messenger from Satan. And this messenger from Satan would try to stop the Apostle Paul at every turn. Every time the Apostle Paul tried to do something for the good of the gospel, he would be shipwrecked. He would be left for dead. He would be whipped. He would be beaten. He would be thrown in jail. He would have people lie about him and talk about him and come against him and all these kind of things. And it was getting so frustrating to the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Paul came before the Lord. And the Apostle Paul said, Lord, take this away from me. And the Bible says, I prayed three times. And do you remember what God said to the Apostle Paul? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, then I'm made strong. And, and, and to us, it almost sounds like a cop-out. That God is kind of given a cop-out answer, but it's, it's not a cop-out. It's an offer to carry. See, grace is more than what we think it is. We have this feeling that, or we have this understanding of grace that is so limited. We, we know that grace is the vehicle by which we are saved. By, by grace, we are saved through faith, and it's the gift of God. None of ourselves, let any man should boast. And the only reason why we get saved when our sins are washed away is because of the grace of God. And then we, we look at grace a little bit, bit broader, and we say, well, grace is the vehicle through which we're blessed. 
That's the reason why good things happen to us. Favor comes into our lives, and, and God does good things in our lives, and that's grace. But what we forget about grace is, I think, the most common need for grace after salvation. And the most common need for grace is to carry us through every situation that we go through. And anybody that's ever experienced the agony of the middle understands what grace is. Because grace, guess what it does? Gets you out of bed in the morning when the middle is telling you to sleep in. Grace is that thing which, which makes you be able to think straight when your mind is so assaulted that you don't know how you can put two sentences together. Grace does that for you. Grace is the thing that keeps you out of the nut house sometimes when you're going through a situation that is so severe you feel like you're going to lose your mind. Grace is the thing that gets you dressed. Grace is the thing that enables you to function. Grace is the thing that enables you to stay in a situation when you want to bolt out of this situation because God asked you to stay in the situation. Grace is that ability. Some of you are here here today. Some of you watching are breathing today because of the grace of Almighty God, carrying grace that took you through whatever it is that you're experiencing. Can I tell you, and I just be transparent for a moment, this preacher is preaching today because of grace. I can't tell you how many times I really had no idea how I was going to be able to preach that week. And if you knew what I was going through at any particular time, because everybody goes through their Gethsemanes. Everybody goes through their middle seasons. And you would hear what God would deliver through me. You'd say, that, that, that's grace right there. There were times when I should have been in a nut house or should have scratched somebody's eyes out. But I got up here and, I, and you'd say, that's, that's grace right there. Times when my mind was so muddled with different things and confusion was so strong in my, my head that I didn't know how I would be coherent at any particular moment. But grace. There were times when the pain in my life made me doubt the promise of Almighty God and God asked me to come out here and encourage you to believe Him for His promise in your life and I didn't know how I was going to do it. But grace. You see, grace is that sustaining force that carries us through any and all situations and sometimes as we go through the middle of circumstances there are no pat answers there's no easy deliverance sometimes the cup is you've got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death but by grace you know that God is with you and you will eventually get to a table prepared for you in the presence of your enemies grace not only does Jesus pray three times but I love it that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to, to put an exclamation on the point of relying on grace. Why? Peter means stone, rock. It's what the Ten Commandments were written in, what the law was written in. And, and, and James is the Gentile version of Jacob, and it means supplanter or replacer. And John is, or means grace. So here Jesus is to going through the middle season, trying to make it through his middle and the message in him taking Peter, James, and John that he wants to send to us was that you're going to have to replace law with grace. You're going to have to get to a place where you realize that sometimes in life you can't fix it on your own. 
Sometimes in life, there's no, nothing you can do in order to make it get better. And sometimes in your life, there is no legalistic way out. There is no way to connect yourself out, buy yourself out, or think yourself out. Sometimes you have exhausted all of your possibilities and you are at your wit's end. It's at times like that that we must lay down our ability to do it ourselves, law, and rely and tap into the mightiest force on the planet, which is the force of grace, in order to carry us through our middle seasons of life. See, if we're going to make it through our middle, we've got to lean on God. We've got to rely on grace. And then lastly this morning as we we kind of wrap this up, we've got to remember the price. Remember the price. I wanted to share a couple of details with you that are not in the text that we read, but are details about the story of Gethsemane in other gospels that really talks to us or hopefully conveys the message of the price that was paid for us. See, Jesus did not have to go through Gethsemane. He did not have to go through the agony of the garden or the atrocity of the cross. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And he chose to for you and me. Look at some of these details so you can just get the impact of the price that was paid. John's gospel Speaking of Gethsemane, says Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, he, he didn't need answers. He was the answer. He knew it. He went forth and he said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them, and as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they fell backward and hit the ground. Now, I want you to see what's going on here, because you'll, you'll realize Jesus didn't have to, he chose to. So here is this, notice, band of soldiers. Guess how many soldiers came to arrest Jesus? I mean, one guy, right? Three, five, ten tops. A band in the original language is between three and six hundred soldiers. Three to six hundred, not just any soldiers, but what we would call Navy SEALs, the finest. These were the ones chosen to, to protect the temple against insurgency. And they came to capture Jesus with their weapons. And when they came to capture Jesus with their weapons, did you notice what happened Jesus answered their question, are you Jesus of Nazareth, with the words, I am he. The most powerful words that he could speak. Because the title I am is a title that was ascribed to God underneath the old covenant. Remember when God and Moses were having a conversation and Moses said, God, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell him, I am sent you right? The holiest name for God. And when Jesus said, I am he, he was declaring, I am God. And when he said, I am he, the power of his words dropped the soldiers with their weapons to their, to, from their feet to the ground as if dead they hit the ground so hard. That's how much power Jesus has. Jesus wasn't captured. Jesus gave himself over he looked at them. He said, you could bring 3,000, 30,000, 3 million. Don't you know that the only way you're going to touch me is if I allow you to touch me? He didn't have to go to that cross. He chose to go to that cross. Look at how the story continues in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, and one of them, still in the garden, 
his name was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, we know his name was Malchus, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus turned around and said to Peter, permit even this? And then he reached out and he touched the man's head and healed his ear. Check out what's going on. Jesus, with his words, knocks over the trained army with their weapons. They're on the ground, hit the ground so hard, they're out of it for a moment. Peter sees Malchus. Malchus was the spokesman for the high priest. Malchus was the one who would always organize all of the rallies against Jesus, all of the things to come against Jesus. Peter sees Malchus lying on the floor. Peter says, oh yeah, it's time to pay you back. Grabs one of the swords from the Roman soldiers, goes to cut his head off, and misses, cuts off his ear. What does Jesus do? Jesus reaches down and either picks the ear up, puts it back on Malchus's head, or touches the place where the ear was and recreates a new ear. He looks at Peter. He says, permit even this? What does that mean? It literally means in the original language, Peter, after everything that's going on in my mind, you got to make this mess. Did you not see what I was able to do with my words? How many of you know God doesn't need our help? How many of you know God is not powerless? That God, when he wants to move, all he needs to do is speak a word? Permit even this. Do you know why Jesus healed the man's ear? To save Peter's hide. Peter assaulted the spokesman of the high priest. It was a capital punishment. Even on his way to the cross, Jesus fixed Peter's mess. Do you know why? Peter had work to do. Peter still had to go, and he had to start the church with the other disciples. And here's what I want you to know. Even when he was going to the cross, fixing our mess was on his mind. Fixing our problem was on his mind. He did not have to go to that cross. He chose to go to that cross. One more detail. Go to Mark's gospel with me. Mark's gospel, the 14th chapter, the 51st verse says, a certain young man, this is in the garden, followed him having a linen cloth, literally in the original language, a grave shroud, a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth, the grave shroud, and fled from them naked. Did you know that there was a naked boy in the garden of Gethsemane? What's a naked guy? Young man, the Bible says, doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, even to this day, you'll know that it is surrounded by graves. And um, here's what I believe happened. I believe when they asked Jesus, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am he. That that blast of power from his words not just knocked over those soldiers with their weapons, but those, that blast of power from his words opened up some of the graves that were around him of young people that were just laid in those graves that had those burying shrouds because rich Jewish people always wrapped their dead in grave shrouds. And this young person that was just dead a few years, few days ago, suddenly when he heard the voice of him who was the resurrection and the life came out of that grave because when Jesus speaks, the dead things in your life begin to rise again and nothing can hold back when the word of God speaks. 
And here was this miracle. This naked boy around these soldiers who were arresting Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God. Now there was a witness to who he was because you don't raise the dead unless you are God. And so they reached out to seize the young boy and when they reached out to seize him, they grabbed the prayer or the the, the burial shroud and the young boy took off because they needed to cover that miracle. They tried to cover up who Jesus was. Society right now is trying to cover up who Jesus is. I want to tell you something. You can't contain the Lord of glory. You cannot cover up who Jesus is. He's the only God to have defeated death. Did it for us. He didn't have to. Chose to. He was that powerful. And I got to thinking about that conversation in the garden and how it related to the price that he paid for you and I. Because, you know, I, I sometimes try to think beyond what the scripture teaches, not, not to teach it, but to, to kind of just imagine myself. We know the movie I Can Only Imagine is out right now. It's the, the young man imagined what it was like for his father to be in heaven. And he wrote that song. And so I started to imagine the conversation in the garden between Jesus and the Father. And so I wrote a song about it, and I'm going to sing it for you right now. You guys ready? <laughs> just playing, just playing. Just, just playing. But I started to imagine what that conversation was like. Father, you want me to do what? Hand over myself to be beaten so bad my own mother won't recognize me. Not use any of my powers to defend myself. Allow them to torture me to a place where I can't breathe and I suffocate to death. Go to hell in their place. And then you, you, you raise me up three days later for a maybe. For a maybe they'll accept me as Lord and Savior. God, you, you want me to do all this for a maybe? God, is, is there any other way? Is there another cup? Could somebody else do this? Maybe Peter. Maybe Make Peter do it. He's a loud mouth anyway. Make Peter do it. <laughs> Thomas, give him the job. He doubts all the time. Let, let's, see, let's see Thomas go through this. And God said, no, it has to be you. And then God said something to Jesus that rocked Jesus' world. He said, there's just one catch. You've got to do it without me. You're going to become sin on the cross. And when you become sin on the cross... I'm going to turn my back from you. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God said, you're going to have to do it without me. And God turned his back on Jesus. And in the turning of his back on Jesus, Jesus experienced an agony that you and I will never know. For the first time in his existence, they were together from the beginning. Jesus was separated from the Father and it was not the cross and it was not the beating and it was not hell but it was his separation from the Father that caused him to sweat drops of blood, a condition that is medically the real thing. It only happens under the most severe agony as the top layer of sin uh, separates from the next layer of sin and a pocket forms that fills with blood so that when you sweat, blood comes through your pores. You only experience that when you're going through the most intense kind of emotional agony ever and he went through that agony not because he had to 
but because he chose to. This is the price that was paid. And if he paid that kind of price for you and me, how shall he not with him freely give us all other things? If he prayed that, paid that kind of price, how shall he not help us through our middle seasons of life? Help us get out of whatever it is that we're stuck on. When I think about what Jesus did, I think about the irony of the two gardens. In the first garden, Adam took a fall. In the second garden, Jesus, the seed, took a stand. In the first garden, Adam caused sin to come on us all. In the second garden, the seed, Jesus, agreed to become sin to free us all. In the first garden, God sought Adam. In the second garden, the seed, Jesus, sought God. In the first garden, Adam hid from God. In the second garden, Jesus, the seed, asked God not to hide from him. In the first garden, Satan led Adam to a tree that caused death to come on us all. In the second garden, Jesus, the seed, agreed to go to a tree, his cross, to cause life to come on us all. In the first garden, the seed was promised. In the second garden, the seed spoke, and he said, not my will, but thine be done. The promise stood the test of time. And I want to encourage you today, if you are stuck in your middle season, God's promise still stands in your life. His promise still stands. His promise still stands. You will make it through your middle season. You will make it through your middle season.